My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I am truly honored and excited to be joined by some amazing women that we have here in Johnson County, Kansas, part of Kansas City, a suburb of Kansas City. They are from the Johnson County Mental Health Center. We've talked a lot about the Johnson County Mental Health Center on the Just a Mom podcast, and I've had a couple of other guests. Today, I am joined by Jessica Murphy and Renee Van Meter, and they have two really unique positions at the Johnson County Mental Health Center, and we're going to do a deep dive on what all that entails. So thank you both for joining me on this episode. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Renee, you want to start us off and tell us what your job title is, what all that encompasses, because I know it encompasses a lot of things. Absolutely. So I am one of the Deputy Division Directors of Emergency Services at Johnson County Mental Health Center. I am so privileged to manage three programs. First is the, we call it the screen and assessment team. And we at the mental health center have a really unique position of being the gatekeeper for the state hospital and doing some hospital, we call them level of care assessments. So just figuring out if hospitalization is needed and being hopefully kind hands in getting individuals there. Another one of my teams is open access, and that is a walk-in clinic. It's a walk-in clinic for anybody who has questions about starting services, is in crisis, just doesn't know where to go. We simply say walk in and we'll have that conversation with you. And then we have the 24-hour crisis line. We have had that for over 40 years and are so proud to also be answering the national lifeline, which is 988. That's incredible. 40 years? I had no idea. I didn't either. And oh, in wow. fact, we kept saying, oh, we've had a we've had a crisis line for 30 years or so. And then I found an article dated 40 plus years ago with one of our call answerers taking a call, supporting a community member. Wow. And we said, wow, we've got to start changing, right? Changing our words. It's 40 plus years now. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thanks. It's happy. To, I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of it. Good. Oh, I'm sure you are. And I know I've gotten some really good feedback from parents just in the last few weeks of the importance of the crisis line and how it is being really well utilized in this community. I, I, stay tuned because we can talk about how well utilized it's being in some <laughs> numbers. Spoiler alert. I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. All right, Jessica, how about you? Tell us about your scope of work. Absolutely. So uh, my half of the division is includes our mobile crisis response team and then our seven co-responder programs. So co-responders is probably what people know or have heard the most about. Um, that program started in 2011 with Olathe Police Department. They uh, were lucky enough to get a grant through um, the federal government and started that program and having truly one clinician from the mental health center embedded inside of their police department. 
And so that was really critical because they were able to have a partner that they saw every day and really building those relationships. From there, we have grown. Um, sometimes we've had slower growths, other times faster. Uh, in 2022, we went from 11 positions to 20 and a half. So that was one of our wow. faster uh, growth spurts, <laughs> if you will. Um, we added 14 new um, people and um, are pretty lucky to have such a robust program here in the county. Um, and they really get to partner with law enforcement on um, our rule of thumb is if you can help and make a difference in someone's life and it um, aligns with our county values and our ethics, run with it. So we don't have a lot of parameters that they have to jump through and say, like, does this match or is this OK to do? If you can make a difference in someone's life, you get to just go forward with it. And that's, I think, really um Really, really cool to get to be a part of that. Absolutely. Let's start, since the crisis line is the oldest part of what we're talking about today, let's just start there and talk about the how that came about, as far as you know, sure. what the function is presently, the numbers, et cetera. Absolutely. That, what a great question, because you probably had no idea that it had a really unique story. I so did not. Our crisis line started as a 24-hour support, so an outside-of-business-hour support to our existing clients. Okay. So the mental health center, over 40 years ago, said, hey, treatment happens and support is needed outside of our business hours. Let's start a phone line to help them. Well, then there's the bright idea of, man, maybe it's not just our clients, right? Maybe our community needs this. Let's open up this line to our community. Mm. And so that was a pretty quick uh, transition from um, being a line that supported just our open clients receiving treatment to the Johnson County, Kansas community. And that is what it has been for 40 plus years. We did something really cool, which was, again, just so honored to be a part of. Um, we knew that 988 was kind of the talk of the town, right? Talk of the nation. I right. should I should correct myself in saying that. So we said, man, let's let's get a seat at the table before that happens. Uh, so we went ahead and in 2001 joined the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That was that big old long 800 number that mm -hmm. I cannot recite to you today because. I just remember 988. Right. <laughs> it, it, that's it. So much easier. It's so much easier. Um, and so then in 2022, right, when we flipped that switch on July 16th nationwide to go 988, we were already a part of the call centers nationwide answering, and it was simply seamless. So in other words, when people would call that 1-800 number uh -huh. that Logic did the song on all, <laughs> several years ago, um, that... You guys received some of those calls. Yes. From absolutely. Johnson County residents only or from anywhere nationwide. It's a really unique situation. So right now, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline that was and 988 that is does not have geo routing or geolocation. And those are really fancy words to describe what 911 has. Okay. Okay. And that's privacy issues. So 988 says, hey. We're still we're still really figuring out privacy stuff, so we're just going to use your phone number. And wherever your phone number originates from, that's where we're going to connect you to the call center. So if you have a Johnson County, Kansas phone number and you're hanging out in Seattle, Washington, you're still going to get me. Okay. Okay? So it's not location-based. It's phone number-based okay. as of now. 
Okay. Do you see a time in the future that that will change, that it will somehow be, what was that, geolocation? That was a very Right, fancy all those term. fancy words. <laughs> <laughs> I do. And here is why I think that, and I really hope that, and we are at Johnson County Mental Health Center involved with talking with legislature to really um, move towards this. We do believe that it is most helpful to reach a person in their community. Now, Will I take that call from someone in Seattle? You're darn right, I will. Mm -hmm. Have I? Absolutely. I have gotten folks to the hospital, to a treatment center, to talk to their family in, gosh, three or four states off the top of my head just mm -hmm. from answering a 988 call. Wow. Mm -hmm. Let's deep dive a little bit into those calls and what people are calling about. And, and then on the flip side, who's answering that call? Sure. Uh, so our callers, we say the word crisis line a lot. Never do we define the word crisis. And so I always want to, whenever we are talking about the crisis line, it really is an invitation for individuals to define it as they want to. That can be a, man, I'm really struggling with a decision I need to make in my life right now and I'm feeling a little worried about it. Or I am absolutely in the acute thoughts and feelings of suicide. And it's a very wide spectrum. And we answer and respond to every one of those phone calls. It's every incredible. single one. <laughs> well, I know when I had Shanna Burgess on here, and we were just talking about her a few minutes ago before we started recording, she said, you don't have to wait until it's crisis mm -hmm. enough. Yep. And I have shouted that since she said that. I think that is the best way to kind of encapsulate what 988 is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If you have a question, and I know that that just sounds maybe not intuitive to individuals who were talking about a suicide and crisis prevention lifeline, they're like, but I, I just want to know how to connect with a therapist in my community. Call. Absolutely. Call. <laughs> and I have given many people the number, just call and they will help you figure out what your next steps are. Absolutely. We know who's calling. Mm -hmm. Who's answering? Who is answering? An amazing team of staff working 24 hours a day. Uh, shout out to them. Mm. So we have a really cool, I think a really a cool system that we have developed in the past year because we built this team. We really took a new approach over the last year and built this team from the ground up. So we have invited our bachelor level or those with the experience at the bachelor level to really come in and be call specialists is what we call them. So we embed them in the call center and we put them through probably a month of training before they are wow. answering and taking yeah. calls and responding because we value that intervention so much. And we really believe that. Um, I, I believe in education. I really, mm. really do. I also believe in experience, mm. right? In life and in training. And both of those come through in our call center. So we have, we, we take in the majority of our, our call takers are going to be at that bachelor level. We then kind of overlay every shift with what is going to be, we're going to talk about a lot as clinician. And that's that licensed, that mental health licensed at the state level, master's degree, you got letters behind your name, awesome. Okay, right? And we do it for a lot of reasons. The clinical experience, um, some, of the, some of the hoops that we have to jump through, and we're going, hey, we're required to have somebody consulting with those fancy letters behind their name, awesome, great. So we plug them in and kind of overlay on all of our shifts as well. 
when a person calls, they know they're getting someone who's qualified to answer the whatever questions. They Absolutely. May have. I also love telling people that I can talk about the licensed staff. I can talk about the training and the experience. The other cool thing is that when you call and you get one person, that person then has people they can turn to in that call center and ask questions to. Which is hey, incredible. I don't know that. Let me ask my colleague. Right? Like it, it becomes this this room of resources and experiences and people. And so while our message is you're not out there alone, right? Our call takers aren't in there alone. Which is such a beautiful portrait of yeah. how life is supposed to be. For, I couldn't couldn't have said it better. Mm, that's good. Let's bring Jessica into this because I'm guessing that there's a lot of tandem work going on here between <laughs> 988 and the mental health co-responders. Yeah. What do you absolutely. say to that, Jessica? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I would add in our mobile crisis response team to that as well. Yes. Um, and I want to make sure before we wrap up today, even to acknowledge the the work that we're moving towards with them, which is a non-law enforcement crisis dispatch, which 988 will be um, critical to because they'll be the ones who are dispatching us to those calls. So we have some cool things on the horizon with them. And, and really that partnership that you'd spoke of is just continuing to grow. Um, but right now, 988 is really the, a great place for us to refer people to because there are times that people call 911 and we want people to reach out regardless of where it is. If you're calling 988-911, that's okay. We want people to reach out when they need to. And then we can also help guide them to the right resource after that or the right service to call. Um, we on our side with the co-responders, there are times where we will even model or help support them in those moments as the crisis has de-escalated to practice calling 988 or our crisis line because like Renee had mentioned, that sometimes people kind of have that like pause of, is this crisis enough? And mm -hmm. I use quotes around that, right? Because what right. does that mean? Um, but if we practice it, that way when they're in those crisis moments, they've already done it. And it's less um, intimidating mm -hmm. to do that. And it really it shouldn't be intimidating, but I think we all second guess some of those decisions. And so sure. the right. more you practice it and rehearse it, the easier it can come when it's time to, to make those calls. Um, but with Renee's team, when we can get those calls diverted to them instead, there are times though that they're going to do that phone assessment because um, they're doing really that same assessment by phone that we do in person. Obviously, being in person is going to be um, better for everyone. You just you see the the nonverbal stuff, you see environment, you can engage, making eye contact, um, and so it's important to highlight the, the difficulty that 988 staff, when they do it by phone, but part of their job too is to determine from their assessment or the, that relationship that they're developing, do we need to get people in person? Mm -hmm. And they will be the ones to make those calls and to call in a welfare check. Um, and they try to do it collaboratively with the person in crisis so that they know what to expect. Um, and if they can, then they're going to make sure a co-responder is available as well to join the officers on that call. Or they'll stay on the line with the individual until officers get there. So there's just really it's an opportunity to see someone through those different crisis systems. Because, again, we don't want someone else to have to stop and be like, wow, I'm in crisis. What's the right thing to do? <laughs> right? That, that's, that's not right. realistic. Right. And so call 988 and they can guide you through that. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I don't want people to feel like they can't call law enforcement either because Absolutely. that is call somebody, yep. right? There are resources there for you and we'll help you figure out the right spot mm -hmm. after that. 
so my understanding, because I've heard a few presentations on um, the uh, mental health co-responders and how you guys work with the police and you're embedded. Yes. I like that word, that yeah. embedded into um, the police, different departments in, in the county. And that's probably not the case everywhere uh, across the country. Right. But here in Johnson County, Kansas, we are fortunate that we have that. When a person calls 911, mm -hmm. and is that when you would get involved if, if the 911 dispatch says, you know, I think this person's having a mental health crisis? How does a, a person right. or how does that happen where yeah. they know to say, oh, we need a mental health co-responder on this yeah. So co-responders, at least in Johnson County, are going to be initiated a couple different ways. So, of course, when that call comes through to our dispatch centers, um, there are going to be certain things that are said or identified that might might um, trip a co-responder to get involved or might help them alert them and say, oh, this is someone who might be in a mental health crisis. Um, that could be who the person is because we are familiar with them and have been able to work with them before. It could be the type of call that comes out. Check the welfare is probably mm -hmm. the most common um, because truly we're checking on that person's welfare. And so there might be a, a, a behavioral health component to it. But we also have the ability to get involved in something that might be like a trespass, right? That doesn't sound like it has a mental health or behavioral health component, but we know that there could be symptoms that lead to that kind of call coming out. So we really don't task our dispatchers with identifying if a co-responder should be involved. We want them to get the most accurate information they can from that reporting party or the original caller and not worry about getting us involved for the co-responder side. So other ways, though, that we could get involved is co-responders are listening to that radio traffic. So that call, when they are sending an officer that call and sending them to the individual in need, co-responders will hear what's going on and they're also going to read it on the dispatch notes so they can do what we call a self-initiation, right? They can say, that sounds like a call that I would be um, able to be involved with and benefit the individuals involved. Not just the person in crisis, but also our officers. Mm -hmm. We're providing a resource to them as well. And so what we don't want is for the officers to have to go to the call, make contact with the individual. And while they're trying to do their initial investigation using their terminology, um, and I don't mean that in the criminal sense, I just mean getting the information, sure. right? They shouldn't have to be there and say, do I need a co-responder? Do I, oh, how do I get, you know, like going through those steps, like let's take that guesswork and that decision-making out for them. And what we'll do is we'll go over radio and say, Hey, I'm staging down the street. When it's clear for me to come on scene, let me know when I'm here. So that helps them to say, oh, they're right there. Come on up. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it, it streamlines that for them as well. Um, and then we're also fortunate enough that we have two um, programs in Johnson County with Olathe and Overland Park where they have what I've been calling behavioral health patrol. So that's a little bit different because our other cities, you're going to see a co-responder coming in one of our county cars okay. and that's they'll be by themselves. They will always have an officer that's driving by themselves. With a behavioral health patrol, they will often be riding in the patrol car with an officer. Um, and it is a subdued vehicle. So it's um, a black SUV, black Explorer. People um, joke, well, it still looks, you can tell it's cops. <laughs> and having ridden in it, you can't always because people are tailing them, they're flying by them, and all of a sudden brake check, you know. Whoops. So you can't always tell. Um, but it is, it's to, to make it a little bit more of a trauma-informed approach. And they will get to ride together to go to those calls. And... I was a bit of a skeptic when we started that, of like that's really narrowing our resource down a bit, but it's been the exact opposite. Yeah. And kudos to our Latha Sergeant for really challenging that decision and, and pushing forward with it because it has been a huge difference. And it's not always the right response because there's not 
always that call volume that supports that need, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Um, but in those cities, they have a larger call volume that it really is a benefit to have them together. But the conversations you have when you're in the car together, not just heading to the call to prepare for it, but debriefing it afterwards, right. driving to lunch, and you're talking about things. There's so much learning on both sides that can happen and that can be really advantageous. So um, that's another style that we have in our county that we're pretty lucky to have um, that works really well. I could mm-hmm. see the advantage of that because my guess is, and again, I don't know, I'm just a mom, mm-hmm. but <laughs> the police officers are generally not trained correct in dealing with mental health crises. I mean, maybe they have a little bit of training, but not like you guys are trained. They are mm-hmm. not clinicians, um, mm-hmm. nor should they be. And I'm not an officer, so you're not going to see me out there arresting <laughs> nor someone. Be. <laughs> I, I'm going to try and pull someone over one of these days. That citizen's arrest has to be real. Um, so yeah, they, they should do their job and let us do ours. But the same thing, like we need them on some of these calls too. And so how can we both make sure that we're staying in our lane, but also learn from each other? Mm. Um, I've learned a ton since getting to work with law enforcement that really challenged my understanding of the work. And I know vice versa, it's happened where we just get to, I say, I'm not doing my job if I'm not making people uncomfortable. Mm. <laughs> well, and there's got to be just so many different situations that you, you're probably never walking into anything that's something that you've experienced before. <laughs> no. As Renee said, there is no um, definition of crisis, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. That is a um, something that is relative to all of us. Um, and they are, there are stories and experiences that go on for days. But I think the most, um, the most beneficial part is that all of them, when we get to help someone through that moment and, and build that relationship with them, it can be really, um, it's humbling on our side that we get to be in those moments. Cause I always say, if we have contact with someone that is likely their worst moments. Right. Yeah. And so that we get to provide that hope and opportunity. It's the same for nine, eight, eight. Really anyone at the mental health center, we're pretty fortunate to be able to, to be in those moments with people and, and help them through it. That is a really great way to say that because you're right. When people are calling either number, mm-hmm. you're not having a great day. Right. No. Right. And to be able to to help somebody must be really rewarding. Mm-hmm. And you guys are doing great work. Tell tell me some numbers. I, I love statistics and numbers. And, and I would love to know some numbers of, like, what percentage of calls to 911 are actually mental health related? What percentage of calls that come into 988 do you dispatch a co-responder or the mobile crisis team. Sure. Right. Start throwing those out. I love those. <laughs> Spoiler alert. We love numbers. <laughs> we are clinicians, I promise. But we also love our data because we know that in such a feeling profession that the facts are what get us resources. Right. <laughs> so I think Jessica and I have learned in our gosh, going on six-year professional partnership yeah. now, that data is truly such a gift, a gift that we can bring, educate folks. Um, so I will throw one out. My favorite that that I'm really talking about a lot is what, what does our five years look like, right? So people talk about a five-year plan. Well, I love highlighting what has happened in five years for the crisis line. Okay. So five years ago in 2017... It's easy for me to remember. 2017, we took just over 17,000 calls. Okay. Fast forward five years. In 2022, we capped out at 44,600-ish. Wow. Right? That's a huge jump. That's a Mm -hmm. huge jump. Okay. So we have used those numbers, that data, 
to first and foremost beef up the staff, the numbers that are answering the calls. We need more staff. And we are so thankful to our county government support as well, right, to, to, to give us, to, to give us those, those positions that we can fill, that we can use. Um, so that's what we've done. What I think is interesting, when I looked at our numbers for 2022, so we had about, I would say, 12 co-responders at the time, considering like training components, right, that kind of skews your numbers. Um of our 911 responses, so we were out on a 911 call, that was 2,700 contacts. We had 16,000 total contacts and interventions. So really, that's what I think about 17%. Wow. And so when you people think of co-responders, and what I do when I present is that really is our bread and butter. That's where we want to be, mm. because we can make the most difference there. And that crisis bond is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And so if we can help someone through that crisis moment, it makes the follow-up interventions that much more... Um, um, valuable. And so, but only 17% are 911 response. So we also, we had, um, I think it was 5,000 phone calls and about 1500 door knocks. So that's our follow-up treatment or care, um, that we will provide, but there's so many more interventions that the co-responders can provide outside of that 911 call, even reviewing a police report, Mm. right? There's an intervention there because we are identifying that this was a mental health call for service and that determining what needs to happen. Do we need to make sure the treatment team knows? Um, And so with our role, I should back up a little bit. We have access to both Johnson County records and the police records. And that's one of the most important parts of these roles because you have eyes on both systems and you can make sure you're the person who's literally bridging that gap between the two. Yes. I've been at the county for 15 years, used to be a case manager for seven. And when you would hear that your client had police contact, you would get their version, which is fantastic and important to have. But there's also what what are we hearing from the law enforcement officers? What was their perspective? And we're just knowing altogether that it happened um, is really important. And so there's so much more that the co-responders can bring um, to serving the community than just that 911 response that we're able to do and, and help people out through. Another really interesting statistic while Jessica talks about the co-responder program and the relationship that co-responder clinicians have with the police department, I just want to highlight the word relationship and Mm. the different layers of relationship that this program allows our community to have in, in, I mean, I do believe it's still very innovative to have the a mental health center and a police department in absolute relationship. I think as any human being knows in our gut, right, relationships are hard work. They sure are. Right? And so to have a mental health mm-hmm. agency and a and multiple police departments in true relationship, give, take, compromise, collaboration, it, it this is a cool stat and I don't know what to do with it yet, but last year... of our phone calls came from collaboration with law enforcement. Wow. Law enforcement that was on scene looking for assistance, support, direction, affirmation. 25%. (laughs) 25%. Of the the calls that came into the 988 call center. Wow. Yes. Is law enforcement collaboration. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, what that kind of triggers in my head is... I feel like what you said is right. There's something very special going on here. And are are we using this as a model for other communities across the nation to to copy? Because I think that if 
people who listen all over the country are thinking, well, gosh, I don't know if my local law enforcement has a partnership with right. a mental or county mental health. Do you know, is that happening? Are you guys like getting calls all over, from all over the country? Yeah. So we are actually, and we have been um, in my almost seven years over the programs. And so through that, we actually started the National um, Co-Responder Conference here in Olathe uh, back in 2020. Um, we're going on our fourth year. It's this uh, June going to be in Spokane, Washington. And so through that, we actually started the International Co-Responder Alliance. And I'm the board chair awesome. um, of the alliance. And and really, that was because there was so much collaboration we were doing, which Renee and I are both natural collaborators. Like, that's just kind of a, is our middle name, maybe? Maybe. <laughs> we have the same middle name. Yep. And it's a unique one, right? <laughs> um, and so it was we're not always the right place to collaborate with. You know, our population size or law enforcement agencies, all that might look different. Funding might look different, rural, suburban. And so it was really trying to connect people to the right um, location and the right place. And I joke that these programs are actually popping up like a Walgreens CVS duos all over the country. <laughs> Which is good. <laughs> it is good, but then no one knows where to turn. Mm. And so you can't Google how to co-respond. Mm, and so right, we wanted to right. create a um, a landing place for, for programs to find um, where to go and who to turn to for support. So we just sold out for our fourth year in a row with our conference That's and uh, are pretty excited about it. Yeah. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. So you guys really are the leaders in this kind of programming because look at what you're doing. I sure these, think we're trying. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we try to stay ahead of the we game. Do. I'll say that much. Yeah, we do. And I, I think that as a resident of Johnson County, I probably have taken that for granted. You know, I will say that it, we feel very fortunate. There are frustrations that we have with um, different layers of the mental health system, right? That happens. We get that. But the grass isn't always greener. And so I think that it is really helpful to to make sure we're collaborating with our other state partners, mm -hmm. um, other community mental health centers, even national. And um, there are many things that we are at the forefront of. And that's really to the benefit and, and because of our executive leadership team and the county commissioners um, and county manager really just saying, I, I joke that Tim's uh, uh, catchphrase is uh, yes. I love it. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? Easy to remember. He remembers it. Um, and, and, and that's a good thing. He lets us do things because he, he just wants us to help people right. and spread our net yeah. as far as we can. And I think that's pretty powerful. And Tim is Tim DeWeese, Sorry. who is the director of Johnson County Mental Health, yes. just to, to clarify that. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking that someone listening, you know, anywhere in the country could contact their local county commissioners or their local, you know, whoever the funding body mm -hmm. is and say, hey, look what they're doing in Johnson County, Kansas. Could could we do that as well. So even just a concerned citizen or mm -hmm. someone who is interested in supporting mental health could really make a difference in his or her own community in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we have done presentations um, in different parts of the country. Um, we just did some here locally in McPherson and Hutch, uh, Hutchinson last week, me and one of my sergeants. And I think we do invite people to come and do site visits with us, but it's really important that they see all the parts of our crisis system, yes. right? From 988, open access to RSI, um, our crisis stabilization center, mm -hmm. because it's not just one piece that solves these concerns and these needs. Right. It's really making sure you have a fluid system and someone might not be able to start up a 20 and a half co-responder program, sure. right? Position program, but they might be able to take components of it. You know, we help with evictions. They can start by getting an eviction list. And so it's hearing mm -hmm. 
what we have through all of our different systems um, and services and and take back what you can. Um, one of our sergeants, it's the Johnny Cash song. It's about a car. And I'm doing a terrible job already. And he's going to never talk to me again that I am <laughs> butchering his analogy. Uh, I say it's a recipe and he tries to go with this Johnny Cash song. But it's like, it's a recipe, right? Here's what we do. It's You don't have to make the exact same one. Make it your own. Mm-hmm. I met with mm. a uh, smaller mental health center in the state of Kansas just a couple of weeks ago talking about the open access program. And it was so cool to hear them, to watch them listen to my program, my awesome you know, project. And through their eyes and ears go, oh, we could do that. Okay. Here's Ooh. how we could do that. We, they have one fourteenth of the staff mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're, what we have here in Johnson County, but their eyes were lighting up at, whoa, how could we do that? I think we could make this work. Right, getting emails a week later, Renee, how do you think we could finesse this into the, the, the system like you talked about it? So again, I, I love that recipe, right? We can double a recipe. We can make it smaller than, but recognizing, you know, those those different ingredients that are so important. But again, also just having those conversations, being willing to say, we might not look just like you. Let's still sit around the table and talk. For sure. Because we can learn something. Yes, always. (laughs) And I'm learning from that. Again, that smaller, more rural mental health center going, okay, wow. Huh. What what could I take from that with Mm -hmm. a limited resource? What could I do differently? Always an opportunity. Always an opportunity. I'm going to throw some little curveballs here at you. Um, Jessica's ready for them. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, I used to be a pitcher, not a catcher, so we'll see how it goes. (laughs) Okay. Well, I was a catcher, so we're just trading places. (laughs) I have um, had some conversations with parents who have had less than favorable interactions with law enforcement in Johnson County, unfortunately. Uh, One that is coming to my mind is uh, a mom who did an interview uh, for the Just a Mom podcast, and her daughter was in a crisis moment. She called 911, and the police came, and the the daughter was, I think, 15 years old, 16 years old, and they ended up pressing charges. Now, the silver lining, and those were her exact words, the silver lining to that was that because of the police involvement, they said, you you need to go straight to Johnson County Mental Health or we will escort you there. And she said, we'll get there, and which turned out to be a great thing mm-hmm. for this child. And um, she has great things to say about the services that they received. Sure. She, she received a case manager. She texted the 988 crisis line from time to time mm-hmm. to just talk through some stuff. So... What say you about that little one scenario that, unfortunately, I know is more than one? Yeah. Um, I hate that people call for help and they, they don't necessarily get what they envisioned help to look like. And I know that if we had complete control of that system, and I don't say me as the mental health center, but even law enforcement, they would do things differently. Uh, but there are many times that it's outside of their hands because there are statutes that require them to take action on things. And so they are limited with with the decision making that they truly have in those moments. And that's something that I've learned getting to partner with them because I do ask those questions. I get to slow down and ask, though. Mm-hmm. And you don't always get to do that in those crisis moments or don't always think to because you're there's so much going on. And so what I would love to do is, you know, when when parents or anyone has those experiences, 
being able to ask in those moments or even following up in some capacity, whether it's with a co-responder or following up with the, um, the police department later on to say, help me understand why. Because I do think that that's a missing piece of knowledge. And we fill some of that in of like, they didn't have to. Um, and again, I used to be that way as well, thinking like, you don't have to arrest these individuals. You can go this route. And that's not always the case, unfortunately. Um, there are many times where they can do that. They can um, keep from even doing a charge or an arrest and get the individual to treatment instead. But if there's anything that's related to like domestic, so parents, um, intimate relationships, they don't have a lot of decision making there. And that is tough because I know you've had the conversation, Renee, on the crisis line. I have as well of... Um, I want to get my family member help, but I don't want them to be arrested. Right. right. And we agree. Um, we want that as well. But there are also times that people do enter that criminal justice system that we can also, I heard this, uh, another lady um, uh, at a webinar said, we can still divert from the criminal justice system even when someone's entered it. Hmm. Right. So just because they've had that first charge or that first appearance doesn't mean there aren't opportunities along the way to divert them from the system. And we have that. We're pretty lucky again in Johnson County. We have mental health diversion. We have um, our treatment teams that help with the what we call forensics, but um, those who have criminal justice charges. And so being able to also pay attention to that, that sometimes that is what needs to happen. But how can we still identify and support their mental health needs throughout that process Mm -hmm. as well? Another uh, scenario for Mm -hmm. you is I recently talked to two members of the Good Faith Network um, team and some of the initiatives that they are really championing and Mm -hmm. getting behind. In Johnson County, we don't have a crisis stabilization unit, which means if someone is in a mental health crisis, they have to go to another county and there's only 10 beds in that county crisis stabilization unit. And the these two women said a lot of times people will end up in jail because that's the only safe place for them to go. I, what do you know about that? Um, I, I don't know that that's exactly how I would, I guess, articulate it. But I can see how some people, as they're learning the system, could, could take that away from it. Um, RSI is the crisis stabilization center that we partner with right now. It is in Wyandotte County. They actually have eight or 16 beds. So eight on the crisis observation and eight crisis stabilization. And then I think it's eight with sobering. So there's different layers to their services. Um, that is something that I hear quite a bit from our law enforcement partners as well, that they would like a local crisis stabilization center. Um, one that is not as far that is in our own community and, and I know there's conversations around it, but I also understand why it's so important to maintain those partnerships that we have, that we do have resources, and how do we make sure that we are utilizing those appropriately as well. So I know those, again, those conversations are happening. Um, I think we're in that process of also getting data to figure out mm-hmm. what we really need in a crisis center, because what we don't want to do is build one and n- do it wrong. Right. Mm, right. Right. And I'm not saying that we should not do it just because we're afraid of mm-hmm. doing it wrong either. It's just being intentional. That's a really big investment into our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so making sure that we're we are intentional and deliberate with our decisions along the way. And I think just another maybe layer of education to put out there for individuals is that facilities like that, like any other 
um, hospital, inpatient, outpatient, we have regulations, right? We have statutes, rules, laws to follow and to really make sure that those are in adherence at local level, at state level. Man, it it can take time. It can take time. And so, right, proud to say that is our community having those conversations? Absolutely. So is it here right now? No. Is that what Jessica and I love doing behind the scenes? Because we get to do a lot of this great stuff, right? We get a lot of the the client-focused work and Again, moving what we what both Jessica and I did in the last year, moving into the kind of program directing side of it, get to do a lot of those back end conversations too. Hey, what do we want to fight for? Mm-hmm. Right? Because we have fought so hard and long to get where we're at now. For sure. Let's keep doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. So what what are we? What are those momentums? What are those motivations that we're working for? That's great. Yeah. I, I will add with the um, the answer or the, the thought, I guess, rather that law enforcement arrests because they don't have other options. And there is some truth to that, but I do think that we are increasing the awareness and the supports that they have access to. Mm-hmm. Again, just increasing our co-responder number, right? right. You're going to have more co-responders <laughs> on that call. And that's really why that program started in 2011, because the goal was how do we keep those with mental illness from entering into our right. jail? And the thought was, well, get them at that first call where that decision is being made. And so there's only so much that we can do though, with those conversations and those decisions. Mm -hmm. And what we learned is it was actually a lot harder to, to divert from jail because there are statutes and requirements that they have to follow. Mm -hmm. What we found is that we are diverting from the emergency rooms at a higher rate, right? Which makes sense because our focus and really the mental health center's focus is least restrictive environment. How can we keep people in their homes um, where we know that that healing and recovery can happen and or get them to the right place because we also want to be a liaison to getting to RSI or the hospital or whatever that might right. look like. And so um, I think that the more when we are on those calls, whether it's 988 or our co-responders, officers are going to see that as well. And then they're going to do it the next time. Um, I know we were, I was in supervision with a co-responder a couple of years ago and we heard a call come out that we knew she would need to probably go on. And he said, no need for a co-responder. We're going to take him to RSI for sobering. Right. He already Perfect. knew that. Right. And that's right. that modeling and that, <laughs> mm-hmm. that hearing those resources and that muscle memory that there is quite a bit of training that they go through, um, whether it's in the academy or our local 40-hour crisis intervention teams training mm-hmm. that they can go through. But it is the practice, um, getting to see others do it and talk right. about it and learn about it that is um, so critical. And I'm just going to share another part of this. I think that, unfortunately, the community only hears or sees the um, arrests Mm -hmm. and sees the bad things, but they don't get to be a part of the conversations where um, just recently we had a couple um, social service agencies actually pushing for someone to be arrested, saying that's what they need. They need to be in jail. That's the safest place for them. And it was the mental health center and two of our law enforcement agencies that both came together and were said, absolutely not. We aren't going to use that system just because the other parts of the system are broken. Mm. This person deserves better and we should be advocating the opposite. Mm. And so I know that people don't get, you know, you, I see those because we have those relationships and get to be a part of them. Um, And so I think it's worth sharing though, that there are those conversations happening as well. The overriding theme that I'm hearing from you guys is the mental health center and law enforcement and everyone involved in all of these different programs just want to help people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys want to help (laughs) people. Law enforcement doesn't want to just go in and arrest people. They want to help people. 
I mean, what crisis line gets to be proud of a near quarter of their calls coming from law enforcement collaboration? Law enforcement that are saying, oh, maybe there's an option. Let's get another voice in on this. I'm eyes here. Let me get somebody else's ears here. I mean, how how cool is that? That's really cool. But it is so it is we are so proud of that because we have been through hard time right we have had hard experiences that is the truth we know that the mental the mental health world still has so much stigma um that we still have we still have hard times yet to come and we will continue to have hard conversations to navigate hard experiences so that you know we all can have um just that healing on on the other side renee talk to us about what a person could expect if they called the crisis line or 988. Sure. Um, I said this on a television interview, and it just popped into my brain, and now I can't stop saying it. I hope the first thing that any caller gets is a kind voice. Hmm. Right? And the the kind was what popped in, because you're always going to get a voice. Someone's going to answer. I promise you that, right? I hope you get a kind voice. Um, and you're going to get someone who just right answers the phone and says, crisis line, mental health emergency, suicide prevention lifeline. You're going to get a pretty canned response. But I'll tell you what happens next is we're not, it's, it's pretty free flowing from there, mm. right? How can I help you? What's going on today? We want to hear in your words why you're calling. We have the skill set to politely interrupt, redirect where we need to, to get the information we need. That's the skill set we bring. You just start talking, Mm. right? What's going on? What can we help with? If we start to hear some risk in any way, shape, or form, we use a nationally valid safety assessment tool to assess risk and to provide interventions and to provide plans going forward. And so we use a set of questionnaire to guide that question. It can be used in conversation. It can be used in checklist format. Um, Depending on the outcome of that, we will will help individuals truly practice coping mechanisms right then and there. Let's breathe together. Let's count. Let's do some grounding techniques. A lot of it is experiential. As Jessica was saying, let's practice so that when this happens again, you can hear, oh, there's Renee's voice counting again, in for four, out for four, right? I'm happy to practice breathing. I'm happy to Paint the picture of what our community has to offer as far as resources for that person. Did you know that you can present to a local emergency room? Absolutely you can, right? Mm -hmm. Paint the picture from maybe most restrictive to least restrictive Mm -hmm. for them. Let them be involved and empower that individual to make a decision about what level of care they might need right now. We do safety planning. We talk about protective factors. What is in your life that keeps you alive? That is a huge part of the conversation. What can we do to your environment? We're going to ask the tough questions. Do you have firearms at home? If you do, how do we get them locked up? How do we get them to someone else who can keep them safe? We're going to ask the hard questions. We're going to talk about what happens after this. Who can you connect to? Who do you call? Um, What treatment resources do you have? So we go through this. We go through a list, right, of questions to safety plan. And I will also say that. In a very small percentage of our calls, we are tasked as the Community Mental Health Center 
to make a really hard decision for individuals who are presenting as acutely unsafe and are unwilling to get help, we will make that decision and we will get help for them. Okay. Yeah. And it's tough. Yeah. I, I tough. just can see it in your face <laughs> yeah, that it's tough. that would be a hard uh-huh. thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard, but I also believe that in a crisis is not the time for someone to decide if they want to live or die. Yeah, and I I do I take that position in the profession that I have that I have um, I know that I was born to do right, and so yeah. I I believe that I want to be that helping person. I think the coolest uh, story that I have most recently is an individual who reached out to crisis line 988 uh, on the overnight uh, and actually ended up uh, coming into Johnson County Mental Health Center for services, right? Got through the crisis at the direction and support of the, the individual who answered the crisis line, started services and came into the mental health center and wrote that crisis line call taker a thank you note. Wow. Right. It it doesn't get better yeah, in my world yeah. than that. And to be able to to hand that thank you card to that staff member. And I get goosebumps thinking about it now. Man, we are we are um, we're saving lives. Yeah, out you there. are. You really are saving lives. Yeah. Over the phone, getting right? them in, getting the mobile response team there. Absolutely. The- and we say so. um Jessica said it earlier, right? All of the components of this crisis continuum that we have in Johnson County and how how absolutely privileged we are to have that, because I say that everyone knows kind of themselves in that moment. Is an in-person intervention going to be best for me? Or am I in a space where maybe I can reach out to somebody over the phone and both are okay, mm-hmm. right? Both are okay. And so we reach people... Um, any way we can. What number of or what percentage of your callers would you say are teenagers? Oh, man, I do not have that. I'm just curious. Yep, I do not have that number. Okay. I, we no have worries. been asked that before. Another cool, right, because we're always building. I'm always in program development mode. So a little bit of kind of bragging on the crisis line. We are in development in collaboration with our County Communication Center. So we are going to take the 988 call takers from their, you know, cool little cubicle zone that we have at the mental health center, and we are going to implant them into the County Communication Center. That oh. is where Sheriff is dispatched, right? Sheriff 911 is dispatched. That is where County Fire EMS is dispatched from. We've got an office oh, space that, that we are good. building out. Talk about innovative. Talk about innovative, right? So that 988 staff are working in the same building as 911 staff. That it's, makes sense. It's pretty cool, right? It does make sense. With that move comes a really big program upgrade for us. We have to invest in what's called call distribution software. Oh. Okay? Okay. So it gives us so much more of that data because we want to know incoming. Okay. I don't know the outgoing numbers. Do you know how many follow-up phone calls my 988 staff makes? We do outreach calls. We check in with hospitals. Mm. We do safety planning. Right? We don't have any of those numbers. Okay. So we are so excited to get more data around what it is we are doing now. Because then, you mentioned it earlier, we're going to hopefully go into chat and text zone next. Okay. Yep. So lots on the horizon for That's us. That's really the exciting. Yep. And it does, to me, make total sense to have those 
to call Mm-hmm. people together and everybody I mean instead of having to be like let me put you on hold hey uh, I need some help you know instead it's like you're just waving right, somebody right. come over Collaboration, here I mean relationship awesome. and it's hard conversations yeah those two worlds right we weren't really built to to intermingle all the time this has been hard conversations mm. there will be hard conversations it is worth it it's the right thing to do well good job congratulations I'm very supported at the mental health center that's awesome Jessica, what is a favorite story or a good story that you could share um, about something that you've encountered or a person that you've encountered that, you, you know, obviously you can't use any names mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Renee, but that, that just would give a, a, a listener a glimpse into what it is that you deal with? Yeah, um, there are actually a lot that come to mind. <laughs> I'm um, sure. And so I'm going to narrow it down to a, an individual who is unsheltered in our community. I'm going to start with, with this one. And um, he has had a tremendous amount of law enforcement contact because I think it's, you know, citizens pass by and they see someone who they identify as in distress, right, or maybe need some resources. And so they call 911 to check on them. Mm-hmm. And so law enforcement has continued engagement and contacts with this individual. He does suffer from a mental illness. There have been a few times that we've had to help him get to the state hospital um, because of what's been going on and our concerns for him and his, his care for himself. Um, and it's just, it has felt like a ongoing cycle of the same thing, right? Goes to the state hospital, comes out, gets off meds, right back into that same kind of pattern. And when you see that over and over and you see the mental health system um, fail someone, in my opinion, um, but also give him the ability to choose and the autonomy, which is a really conflicting place to be. We want both to happen. Um, What I just heard recently is he had gone to um, 1020, 1020, Project 1020, our uh, local homeless shelter that is seasonal. And um, their executive director, I guess, for lack of a, a better title, um, has done a lot of work to engage with him and has helped him get on an injection and stay on it. Mm-hmm. And I share that story because it's not just law enforcement, co-responders, the mental health system, because mm-hmm. um, the treatment teams involved. It took that, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. It took the safety and security and, and those basic needs of housing to help him be able to take those next steps. And we had tried right. to get him into housing. It just wasn't what he wanted. But those right. relationships were critical for him staying there and building that trust. And so it's not just one person. Um, and we had repeated contact, but yeah. our teams know you don't give up on somebody, right? You give them every intervention is a new chance for them to get the help that they need. We don't go into a call saying, I know what's going to happen because that's not human behavior. Right? You don't know what's <laughs> yeah, going to happen. That's probably you, true. You have some indicators right. of what could happen. But if we go into it with that expectation, we're also not going to give it our best. We're going to change how our intervention is. But so we are always going to go in saying what could happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do everything I can to make that um, and give that person the chances and the, the options to, to make that recovery happen. Um, I'm gonna tell another one. Yeah, please Again, I do. Could, just have us here all night. Um, this is also with one of our law enforcement agencies, and this is not a um, behavioral health situation. There was a woman in her um, early 90s who we had contact with uh, for various reasons. There was um, a need for her to not live at her home anymore because of the the um, environment that she was in. Right, not not a safe environment because she'd lived there for decades. 
accumulated a lot, as many of us do. Um, and, and so it just wasn't safe for her. And so they helped her get to the hospital, which was not what she wanted to have happen. Um, through these different touches with her, we stayed involved even while she was at the hospital because she was coming back home. They were discharging her to a hotel. You can imagine, right? There are some, some complexities there. So our sergeant and our co-responder stayed involved. We got our mobile crisis team case manager involved. Um, and it turned out that she needed to go on hospice because of some medical stuff that they had identified when she was in the hospital. Her and her daughter had, um, an estranged, uh, relationship at that point. Um, and the case manager, co-responder and sergeant were able to get in contact with daughter to bring her back. And there was some con, I mean, you can imagine after years of not engaging, um, it, it was a little bit difficult. And, um, towards the end, she agreed to go back home with her daughter and stay there. She has since mm. passed. This has just been in the last six months or so. Um, but the investment that our police department, mm -hmm. our justice system had, because we had the uh, municipal judge involved, um, our co-responders, the crisis line, MCRT, it was pretty cool, again, to see all those different touch points to come together, that it's one person's not going to solve these systems. Mm. Um, but it, if you really engage all of them, and mm -hmm. I think holding people accountable to how they are supposed to serve our community, then we can really make a difference in a lot more lives. I am just struck by how fortunate I am to live in this county with such incredibly capable, smart, caring, compassionate people like you guys who are making all of these things happen and I just want to say thank you because you're making a huge difference in our community. And because of that, you're also the ripple effect. Yeah, you're yeah. making a big difference throughout the entire country because people are modeling what you guys are doing. It's awesome. Thank you. Is there anything else that I have not asked you um, that you would like to bring up or talk about before we wrap up? That's a loaded question. <laughs> That's um, why I asked it. <laughs> I will, if you don't mind, touch on our mobile crisis team. Yes. So I've mentioned it a couple of times, and I think that it is a service that our community doesn't know about. Okay. And it was really the um, – they were co-responders before we had co-responders, before okay. we knew what that term was, um, at least locally. And so that team, what we said about 30 years that they've been around – um, and actually Tim DeWeese, our exec, our, our director of mental mm -hmm. health was one of the early, um, team leaders of okay. that team. I didn't so know that. Mm -hmm. he might not like that. I actually gave those dates <laughs> and then how long he's been at the mental health center. So sorry, Tim. Yeah. Um, so that team also gets to help people regardless of kind of what's going on. And so they provide free crisis case management to the community. And I say that because, um, if you're, expecting someone who is in a, whether it's a crisis or has a serious mental illness to just wake up one day and be like, I'm going to go get help, right? Mm -hmm. That would be great. Our job would be super easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but that's not the reality. There's right stigma, on, right. vulnerability, and a lot of reasons that go into that of, of even not feeling like they have a problem in those moments, right? That um, is relative to what they're experiencing. And so that team can work with people for free, and help them get involved in services. And so um, we've had, we of course have case management. That's one of the primary services that we provide at Johnson County Mental Health. But someone who was a case manager for, for seven years, really hard to describe what a case manager is <laughs> oh, and <yes>. does. 
Um, I, the only thing I say is we could all have a case manager and be better off for it. Absolutely. <laughs> right. It's to just help you through the different processes yep. um, in life. And so we provide that same service for free. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. We go knock on someone's door and we can help them with whatever they need. Do they need to get their driver's license renewed? Do they need to um, move? Are they being evicted? Do they need to um, get to a hospital, but they aren't ready to do that? Or is it, are there medical concerns? Whatever that crisis is, we get to identify what it is. And we don't even have to focus on mental health. Because mm-hmm. when you come in and say, hey, I'm with Johnson County Mental Health. You want mental health services? <laughs> <laughs> nope, sure don't. Talk about no. a, a way to turn someone right. off from the system. And so we can focus on what are your goals? What is the mm-hmm. one thing that you want to resolve or get help with? And how can we do that? And so um, that is unique in the country that we provide that free crisis case management. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen somewhere else. So if someone's listening, by all means. Yeah. Um, but it awesome. is, it's a cool resource that we have. And they can do that for a week, three months, a year. It really just depends on what that need is. I would say it's unusual that we do it for a year, but there have been those scenarios where we can. And one of the situations um, that we got involved with that I share often, there was a woman buying a home and was incredibly stressed about that. And a lot of stressors, as we all know, that goes into that. But she had limited... Um, uh, supports. And so one of our case managers went and sat with her through the paperwork process just to reduce her anxiety. And if that one intervention and one time can mm-hmm. change someone's trajectory right. in their life and their recovery and just giving them hope that someone, a stranger cares enough to do that with mm-hmm. you, yeah. um, that is, is worth it. Mm-hmm. Well, and just to support that she was being mm-hmm. independent and yep. buying a home and yeah. all those things that are really good. Right. Right. Jessica and Renee, thank you again. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you all as guests on the Just a Mom podcast and to share to share your just incredible wealth of knowledge and experience and care and compassion with our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks for uh, getting this message out to people so they know what's available to them, Mm -hmm. whether it's locally or to know what to ask for in their local communities. And I will put all of these different things in the show notes so that people know, you know, they can click on links and things like that. So just to make it a little more accessible. So this is this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Once you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. Once you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.